We all watched Interstellar with Kevin, and he was so proud to be like, we had that. That was a question on a test. That's real. <laughs> yeah. That can really happen. We proved that it can happen. It was great. We had like a little Q&A, and he answered all our questions. Yeah. That it was, it was, yeah. That's nope. what I loved about that movie. Well, you realize yeah. there's going to be an exam at the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Talking to people about dark matter and neutrinos can be funny. Surely you're joking. Hopefully, yes. What a wonderful universe. Welcome to Surely You're Joking. I'm your host, Kevin Hickerson, uh, joined by co-host Jimmy O'Yang yeah. and uh, Owen Benjamin. Hello. Hello. And today we're extremely honored to have uh, someone I've known for a really long time. It's an honor. It, it is an extreme honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's a professor of physics uh, emeritus at Caltech, the Richard P. Feynman Professor of Physics. Uh, really, absolutely one of the smartest people I know on Earth, uh, Kip Thorne. It's a pleasure to be here. Yep. Thanks. I'm glad I have you fooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've known you since high school, so I've studied stuff. I've read your books and everything, so you're definitely a hero to physicists. And now with your work on Interstellar, you're a hero to an even bigger audience than that, although you've been doing that all your life also. So, <laughs> um, I, have, I saved it because I knew it was going to be very, um, very important to me down the road. You, when I took your class, I wasn't so good at doing the homework, so I had to do as an undergrad at the time. So I had to, uh, I had to do uh, an in-class or an oral exam with you, and you wrote it out for me by hand. And I wanted to bring it today to show it to you, but I left it at home. But anyway, now that's framed on my wall, and I have a little movie frame from Interstellar. That's and awesome. one of the questions on there is, uh, it's some properties of going through a, a, charged, <laughs> a charged wormhole. Um, yeah, I loved watching the movie because of like random things like. Uh, I think recently I brought this to your attention. Um, uh, Lee Billings, you know, from mm-hmm. uh, from Scientific American, said that you know you'd get crushed in a black hole; it'd be too hard. And I remember that being a problem in your class. Yes. Was, was it about that? rotation or something? I well, remember you and Andy Weir were talking about that with the spaghettification, and you were like, "No, it's possible." Yeah, yeah. Well, it's even a little different there because there are some ratios of. Uh, he talks about that in his book that the getting a planet that time lapsed was a like a little bit extreme. Right. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. That much time time lapse. It, it's a very extreme amount of rotation that uh, the black hole has. It's possible in principle. In the real universe, there are things that would naturally spin the black hole down somewhat very quickly, unless it's somehow protected against uh, the environment around it. Okay. Um, but it, it, Lee was even saying that you would get spaghettified even at the horizon, and that was the yeah. one that was a. Um, that was a homework problem. Was like, there's lots of very, very big black holes out there. Um, uh, do you know what yep. the limit is? Uh, any the... black hole bigger than uh, 10 million solar masses, you you can survive. You might have to curl yourself into a ball, but uh-huh. you can survive <laughs> right. going through the horizon. It's uncomfortable at 100 million. It's sort of beginning to be uncomfortable, and that's uh, where Gargantua is in the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which was that's why you picked that area to yeah, be. That's, yeah. Uncomfortable. Did you know that uh, there was going to be such a big controversy among astronomers and scientists when that happened? Was that on purpose, too? Because I kind of felt like it was. Well, it wasn't on purpose, but uh, I was not surprised because uh, a lot of people know a little bit about general relativity. And what they know about is non-spinning black holes. And uh, so there was a huge amount of, uh, uh, of criticism of the movie. Uh, by people who know about non-spinning black holes and knew that you can't possibly get that much slowing of time around a non-spinning black hole. They just didn't know about spinning black holes. Mm-hmm. It's the, the problem of, of not realizing how limited your knowledge is. So a friend <laughs> of mine uh, who reviews movies said he thought that people were trying to prove they were smarter than the movie and that that was the, <laughs> that was the issue. They're well, like, I, well, I, they know about black holes, so I want to, yeah. I got to say this. I could do the calculation. And with, in the case of Lee Billings, when he says, look, I know it's not possible, I, one of the things I would always ask was like, really, did you calculate it? Because that seems yeah, like yeah. something that's hard yeah. enough to do that. And then he was nice enough to, uh, to tell me that he contacted you and you sent him a copy of the book. Yeah. And uh, today we brought um, – I got a book – for you to send to Andy Weir because we had a very similar conversation <laughs> with him. And so I promised him I would send him a, a copy of your book so he can um, he can learn about that too because you guys are almost working on the same <laughs> kind of thing, a, like a scientifically valid yeah. movie, 
So yeah. I thought it was extra interesting that he was like, well, but this is going to be different because it's going to be more plausible. It's like, no, that other one's also kind of plausible. So <laughs> Kind of? Come kind on of. now. <laughs> it's more than that. It's very plausible. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I mean, what I, what I like to tell people is what I liked about the movie, this is more of a philosophical thing, is to me uh, that line where um, he says, he read, reads Murphy's Law and says anything that can happen will happen. I feel like that's exactly how you taught me how physics works. Because if you use your imagination about what's the, you would always say like a sufficiently advanced civilization. That was your, your key word before everything. And I loved thinking about that because physics really should be a study of what's possible, you know, all possibilities. And interstellar is this nice little circular loop. You know, it's a, a time loop. A lot of people didn't seem to know it was about time travel, but it c clearly had information going in a loop. Yeah. And what's nice about that is like, look, it either happened that way or it didn't, in which case it was a very boring movie because people just went extinct. Right. Those are the only two <laughs> options. Right. It's like right. The only way out of it was for that wormhole to exist. Because do you did you get did you talk to people who mentioned like the implausibility being upset? Like I, I had a lot of people seem to not understand how the wormhole got there. Like, well, there's no wormhole at Saturn. Yeah. You know, kind of missing that. Yeah, no, I've not had people t raise the issue with me, but I think it's explained explicitly in the dialogue in the film, where. Somebody, uh, it, it, it may be Brand or his daughter, uh, it, uh, it talks about how it, uh, it had to have been put there by they. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's one spot in the dialogue very near the end of the movie where they is explained explicitly, the bulk beings, mm -hmm. which yeah. is uh, the way we imagined it from the very, very beginning when we introduced wormholes into the film. Right. And I, I certainly got it out of the film, but I was... Yeah. Tainted by knowledge of, <laughs> of your thought process. But if you so if that so if that's like them in the future making the wormhole, like now that they're like saved and they have all this stuff, now is it almost like a like an obligation, like a hundred thousand years later, to be like we got to make that wormhole so this all happens? Uh, well, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it's Cooper's speculation that the they is humans who have evolved uh, into the far distant future and have actually adapted to live in the fifth dimension. Mm. But uh, there are many things in there that, that are speculations by the characters that aren't necessarily true. And in fact, there are some of the speculations by the characters that are uh, clearly false. So you don't have, uh, you're, I would invite you not to take seriously everything the characters say. <laughs> nice. right. That's good advice. <laughs> now, when I first saw the movie, I, I don't have a physics background or mm -hmm. anything like that. So I love the film. Is, was there ever a discussion that um, we have to kind of teach this science and physics lesson to the common folks to the way that they can understand it? Um, Not at all. Um, so Christopher Nolan had the attitude from the beginning that he wanted to make a great movie and that it would be wonderful to make a great movie that's as scientifically plausible as is compatible with making a great movie. Uh, but he also has a style that you see in all his previous movies, particularly strongly in Inception, but also here, that uh, there will be things in the movie that you don't understand. Right. And you're not going to understand unless you see the movie five times, <laughs> and maybe not even then. Yeah. And in, in that case, then it's got to be explained to you by somebody who knew what was going on in Christopher Nolan's mind at the time. <laughs> Which is a great way to sell a second book, i got to so, say. And so in, indeed... <laughs> Uh, Chris wanted something that had really cool science in it, mm -hmm. but he did not wa uh, particularly want to explain the cool science. He wanted the audience to experience the cool science, become enthusiastic about the cool science because it's so weird and uh, so fascinating, uh, I, and then go off on their own and learn about it. That's exactly how mm -hmm. I felt. Like I, I really wanted to learn about relativity and, and time travel yeah. and the possibilities of it after seeing that movie because yeah. I was confused by it. Um, and then... Uh, the movie's about love, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> There's yes, nothing confusing about the movie. The funniest thing is like a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't get it. It's like, well, can you explain how a movie theater works? Because <laughs> like, we're all on the shoulders of giants here. Right. It's yeah. like you don't see the science of like uh, anything. I thought that the was irony the of movie. tweeting out that you know, the movie uh, yeah. was bullshit. Tell me, tell me. Using a thing that uses general relativity <laughs> to calculate where you are on Earth. Yeah, so do you know you how air conditioning works? Do you know how a table <laughs> leg works? Like, a lot of people... It, because yeah. I just think that, uh, but people loved it though. I hosted the Art Director oh, Guild Awards this year that was honoring Christopher Nolan, and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, as soon as they started playing clips Interstellar, people were just like, I mean, people are upset because it is. It's about love. Like I cry three times. Yeah, because it's about love. Yeah. And but that's, I liked the way it was about love. And I hope we can get Christopher Nolan on this podcast sometime, <laughs> too, because I want to know what his motivation was with that. Because they also talk and I've never heard you. I've heard your talks on the science of it. But I wanted to know if you felt uh, if we had the same interpretation about those comments about love and obviously like his um, uh, his love for his daughter, which is obviously a really big theme in the movie. Um, if you thought that that was uh, like Christopher Nolan deliberately made that scene where he's he's feeling that love, it really does act like a force on him. And it ties into the question you asked about, well, would you be obligated to go back and make it? It's related to that same question because in the movie he says, why, you know, is is he obligated to talk to his daughter so do you have thoughts on that well i think he is obligated to 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 give this information to his daughter at least about where to go to find the nasa facility because right. his daughter did get that information right but that's yeah. but, so, but so, that was making a statement about right. free will right there well, which i enjoyed but, but this a lot is, but so. this is a a statement that is really part of modern physics um in the sense that if you have the possibility of backward time travel uh, if you have, as we say, technically closed time-like curves, uh, and then everything has to fall into place self-consistently, or else we physicists have to hang up our hats and abandon the whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so before uh, I initiated the modern research on on time travel, which was back uh, at the time of uh, Carl Sagan's contact, Igor Novikov, a close Russian friend of mine, had already enunciated something that that I gave the name uh, Novikov's uh, principle of self-consistency, that if you can have uh, backward time travel, then everything has to be self-consistent, period. Mm -hmm. So I knew that was true from your work, and you yeah. talked about that in class, and when you talk about wormholes. So I already knew that physicists feel that way. But what's so amazing about that movie is that I know that Hollywood hates that idea because this is the fundamental problem. Uh, like The key to all literature is that you know, before the 1800s, anyway, the key to all uh, pre-American literature is that human beings have choice all the time. Mm -hmm. And then when you had like the determinist movement in the 1800s, or 1850s, um, people kind of abandoned that and they, they kind of went on a detour. Well, well, then we're just robots. And, you know, the modern view is a lot more complicated because we invented chaos theory. We invented quantum mechanics. I don't believe in free will. Put me around a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> but but audiences do. Audiences right. do. Yeah. So that's why I was asked. So a lot of people made fun of this uh, love is a force comment that's in the movie. But that to me, that was like deliberately done because even though it sounded corny at the time, it's it's it is the reason he audiences are comfortable that he's doing that to his daughter. So, it, you know, it's obeying the laws of physics, but he's also being forced to do it. And, you, like, it was such a nice way to connect with the audience because everyone's like, of course I would do that for my daughter. Right. And, you know, I, I just love it. Do you know yeah. if Christopher did that on purpose? Or well, did you I, discuss I, it with him? We, I did not discuss the, uh, the uh, things that are said by Cooper about uh, love, love uh, Cooper and, and Amelia Brand, uh, about love being a force, love being the key to uh, finding his daughter in the fifth dimension uh, and so forth. Uh, I, knowing Christopher Nolan quite well, uh, I believe this comes out of, uh, he, he, ha he has children that he loves very deeply. And uh, I think his character, portrayal of characters in this film is stronger than in any other film he's ever made. And I think it is because of the father-daughter relationship, which he has uh, intense personal experience with. Yeah, and I got to say that and worked on me too, because I have a, I had an eight-year-old daughter at the time. Now yeah. she's nine, but uh, mm -hmm. I had a daughter yeah. at the time, and I even went. I took her to the, the Chinese theater in Hollywood, to just the two of us on it, and it just like, blew her mind. Yeah. She just loved it. So, yeah. and it was, yeah. it was very intense watching it together like that. So I'm pretty sure this is where this comes from, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a powerful force in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, I myself, as a physicist, don't believe that love had anything to do with Cooper's success in, in finding Murphy in the fifth dimension. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I can well, I th find it totally plausible that Cooper believed that was the case. Uh -huh. And okay. it's, again, it's an example of uh, things that the characters say that uh, 
you should not necessarily take as, as gospel truth. That's certainly how the characters see it in the film. Well, I guess that was that fell naturally to me that yeah. they were labeling a thing, a subset of yes. the laws of physics that were called. Yeah. I even qualified it to Andy Weir, and he because he, at first he was like, "Oh, come on, stop doing this." But I said, <laughs> "Well, okay, it's it's really just a you know, it's a subsection of." the strong and electromagnetic force, you know, that binds molecules together that causes an animal to do things. That's there, but that's what we call love. And, you know, just, it still forces you to do things in that our brain is wired to our bodies and that body does something. Right. So I, to me, it was okay to just label that as a new kind of force. Like you can call, it's a false force, you know, like you can call it centripetal force in that it's not fundamental, but it's well, still it's gonna a make thing me give that, half my money to my girl. <laughs> That's a powerful force. <laughs> but she hears this, she's like, I thought we agreed at 75. Half is like the legal it's 50, minimum. 50 50, Amy. 50 50. <laughs> oh, uh, you should tell about uh, what? Anne Hathaway saw his performance and uh, said that she was an Owen Benjamin fan at that thing. He just, <laughs> tape. he played no, it, he posted it, played no, it I on said that He's like, I'm a big Owen Benjamin now, fan now. He's just incredible. And I just made it a three second loop and I just want to play it when I'm sad. <laughs> you, go to, you put headphones on and go to sleep. <laughs> well, you're, you're a very lucky man because she's a wonderful woman. A very sweet woman and a powerful woman. Yeah, yeah and she breaks a lot of laws of uh, actors in the sense that because I know a lot of actors and comedians, and I think she almost has a little bit of both. Like she mm -hmm. has, because she, I did this uh, award show, and there was uh, a malfunction with the teleprompter, so I, they needed a war general, they needed a stand-up. So I went out, did jokes, I played a song for them, I do music, and within like two minutes, she was comfortable to just sing the song to Christopher Nolan, and I was mm -hmm. like, that's like comedy chops. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, because a lot of actors, Jimmy, may take... <laughs> Like I'm just joking. Jimmy's also comfortable. Right? Like, like they like have to make sure they're in complete control of what they're doing, and she right. can just be herself. And I thought, yeah. I mean, she just blew me away. And it's not because she just said I was funny, but it was very impressive. <laughs> now and, in the uh, sorry, no, and and Nolan's speech was insane. Like you could tell that that dude just, even if he wasn't in Hollywood, he'd still be like tinkering and making something. Yep. And I love people like that, where it's almost like their success is a byproduct of their passion, and mm -hmm. he seems like that type of person. Yeah, you should see his garage. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's where a lot of the ideas for the uh, props in, in his movies come from. And he's a tinkerer par excellence. Yeah, he almost wormholes through Hollywood BS. Yeah. Like yeah. someone could ask him about, like, what's it like? winning an academy award he'd be like well we had to figure out how to put a wheel I, like he's just not even <laughs> on that that plane of thought mm. it's like a different uh dimension of of just being passionate versus like thinking about dumb stuff so when i asked the question about the writing um i realized um it's easy to swap christopher and jonathan so did jonathan have anything to do with the well jonathan the had a lot to do with uh, the film particularly the first act Mm -hmm. uh, the the crisis on earth and so forth uh, but it really was a collaboration but collaboration sequentially which is the way they have always worked mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan or Jonah as his friends call him Jonah uh, will write several drafts of the screenplay uh, and then turn it over to Chris who's going to make the movie and Chris will change and make major changes and uh, write the last several drafts mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, in a large fraction of the movie, you can't really say where it comes from, uh, Jonah or Chris. Uh, but the, uh, well, I have to say, I'm not even sure. Love certainly was was a was significant in in Jonah's uh, uh, piece of it, but Chris uh, uh, carried it far beyond, I think, what Jonah had. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's just from vague memory. So, are you happy not believing in free will? Do you? feel like that's as, as a fictitious force also? I think that uh, there's a big difference between, let me, let me start over again. Uh, we can be close enough to having free will that for all practical purposes we do mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, without, without uh, truly having it. That's because of quantum mechanics because and chaos? Well, mm -hmm. and, 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 and chaos theory, mm -hmm. sense, extreme sensitivity, initial conditions, and so yeah. forth. I feel like that kind of so postponed the problem. You it know, may like postpone <laughs> the problem, but uh, uh, in many places in, in the real world, being close is good enough. 
right. it's all that's needed for practical purposes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But when you go out and make a movie and you have people trying to stop something that they want to stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. No, and they can't. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, it depends on how it's handled. But, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, yes, 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 yes. probably yeah. shouldn't mention two movies anyway, but I saw a movie called Time Lapse recently. And it's a, it's a very low-budget film, but one of the things I like about it is that just like in Interstellar, it shows the you know the, the physicist version of what time travel is about. And I really like it because they show people trapped in that uh you know in that situation because the whole thing is always them constantly trying to either you know be horrified by what they know is going to happen or do something about it but you know the movie is very well written and that goes on and um uh, nolan did that really well with uh, um memento also mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. amazing yeah. here's kind of a mind bender for you critics also don't have free will so they kind of have to do that <laughs> <laughs> like they have no choice <laughs> Like them claiming they have free will is predetermined. Right. <laughs> also, it's weird that people immediately take we don't have free will, so somehow that has something to do with morality. Like that always bothered me. That's yeah. now, That was where I think the whole discussion got into a problem way back in the 1800s was that people were like, oh, we don't have free will, so you can't punish me or something. But – you know, right. you're kind of you're already jumping the gun on that. You're just like, no, of course, you know, I don't have free will either, so I'm going to punish you for it. So yeah, you know, it's just the way I'm things all about happen. Just accepting the system <laughs> and then seeing like a, a way I can enjoy it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like okay, as far as like AI goes, uh, all the people that are claiming that they're going to take over the world, and and all my science friends are saying that it's not going to happen. Is it because you have to engineer so many reactions to everything that that to get all right, I don't even know how to phrase this. I don't feel I have any great wisdom about AI. It's, I, it's I, just the free will, uh, yeah. the whole free yeah. will idea, where I mean, it's like you can have a computer yeah. make yeah. choices. I mean, I mean, the free will issue is something I probably do feel I do, but AI not. Uh, and the free will, it's, it really is, I think, an issue of uh, the question is much more complex than just do you have it or don't you have it. Mm-hmm. It's a question of to what degree do you have it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What degree uh, do you think? Well, I think to a very high degree. Do we have uh, free will? Yeah, to a very high degree. Not 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 100%, but to such a high degree that for all practical purposes we do. So, so uh, how do we explain me and cookies? <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just a character defect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, obvi- there's lots of examples where you clearly don't. Like, once you've been pushed off a building, you're going to fall down. It doesn't matter how you feel. it. So your, right. th- your problem with cookies is in that category. Well, I heard this radio lab where this woman had this um, – brain problem where it was almost like she was a goldfish and had like a 20 second uh memory mm-hmm. and oh, like in memento it's the same thing yeah or that adam sandler but movie. you could actually hear her talk <laughs> and it's crazy how she would react the exact same way every single time mm-hmm. and that made me start questioning free will because it was like the the initial response is always the same next statement always the same third statement always the same then restart and it was like, if you truly have free will, wouldn't you respond differently it's, at some point? It was always the same exact loop, mm-hmm. which means it's almost like there was weird triggers in the brain that's like, now you do this, and now you do that. It's like a pinball machine. No, it's an issue of, uh, again, of degree. Right, um, yeah. If uh, you put her in a different situation, uh, it might not manifest so so clearly, yeah. so so unequivocally the same. Well, so I, as a kid, I wrote, I read Jurassic Park when it came up, and as far as I remember, that was the first piece of literature to 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 come up with the idea that chaos theory makes it an irrelevant thing. But I don't, I'm not sure they really what does that were mean focusing exactly? on free will so much. But is is there an earlier example? Where I, I don't know. I, I, okay. I, now I was uh, I was thinking after we watched Interstellar, asking Kevin all these questions, and um, I was thinking, does Groundhog Day somehow have some kind of science behind it with the loop and things like that? Well, that one, uh, well, you can understand if you want, but <laughs> I, I would say that was a non-physical movie because it involves parallel universes, and also he's a traveler through each of those. And yeah. I mean, uh, you can imagine some underlying science that might be able to justify it, but it's not science that does in in any sense. Uh, part of the mainstream are well understood today. But there are the I- issues of parallel universes uh, and jumping from one parallel universe to another. Those are uh, in, in an area that is so far beyond our current frontiers of firm knowledge that uh, uh, a physicist uh, 
can't say anything uh, any firmer about that uh, than a non-physicist. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that you'll get physicists to talk about, uh, a typical physicist, uh, uh, talk about uh, over beer or, or something harder than beer. <laughs> uh, but uh, 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 they won't have anything really uh, wise to say yet. On the other hand, those are issues that once we understand the laws of quantum gravity, which is the holy grail today of theoretical physics, these may come under control, and we may be able to talk in a knowledgeable way about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the exciting thing, is that the frontiers that are now being worked on uh, are frontiers which, uh, when solidified and fully understood, may open up a whole new universe of uh, concepts and ideas and knowledge of uh, wh wh which of these speculations makes sense and which are nonsense. So I, I feel like um, that, that those side physics you know, possibilities like parallel universes, part of what I mean when I said that uh, uh, audiences like free will more, like they don't like to be told there is no free will, is I think if you were to put a big pie graph of, of time travel movies, there's way more that just sort of pick out one of those. Like, yeah, yeah, there's the you can't do anything about it. But the way more interesting one is the other one. And I, I think since I already, I, since Kip taught me about, you know, the self-consistency, I always thought that actually was the harder movie writing to do. And I, I, I thought Interstellar was one of the first. Means exactly self-consistency? It, it's, it's, uh, it means that if you observe something, yeah. you're an observer, right. and you, you make decisions, or at least you think you do, like you pick left when you go right. It means if you sat there and watched yourself make that same decision and you know that something bad happens when you make that decision, that means that even if you go like, well, I'm not going to make that decision, it's going to happen anyway. So it means that there can be no uh, – there can be nothing along this chain of events that uh, changes for one of the observers just because they happen to have come from a different past. So, Everything – well, I think – So in the context of Interstellar – it means that uh, if Murph and Cooper sat in the uh, Murph's bedroom with the dust falling and see it falling and making a pattern uh, that uh, is binary code for the location of uh, the NASA facility, which they then go and visit and uh, pursue uh, the story in the movie, that, uh, that at some point Cooper or someone else has to make that pattern. Yeah. That, ha that pattern has to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and once that pattern has been made, there's no way you're going to change it. That it uh, there's no way to go backward in time and change that pattern once the pattern was made. So if you go back in time, whatever you do, it's still it's that's already set. Like that it's, line is set. That it, yeah. Yes. A anything that actually happened, if you can go backward in time, there's no way that uh, you can avoid it happening. Interesting. Unless you wind up in a different universe. And that's the parallel universe idea. But if right. the, if there is no parallel universe you're going to wind up in, if you're really in our universe and you do have the possibility of going backward in time, things that uh, happened cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. That, uh, as Stephen Hawking likes to say, the universe is safe for historians. Mm. <laughs> and, and comedians. Uh, Stephen Hawking <laughs> says a lot of times he doesn't believe in uh, time travel because they didn't come to his party. Did, do you believe in time travel? And if you had a similar party, maybe they've come. Maybe you've come in to your own party. I don't know. You're just keeping that secret. Well, we don't <laughs> tell people. I mean, I'm <laughs> I, I would like to know. I'm, I have a very open mind on backward time travel. Um, I think it's probably uh, forbidden, prevented, but it's not completely clear. And so uh, one of the things that I did spend a fair amount of effort on at one phase of my career was trying to understand how you can formulate the laws of physics uh, to uh, accommodate backward time travel. Oh, and uh, hmm. the, the most fundamental of the laws of physics are quantum laws of physics that normally just govern atoms and molecules, but they really do govern everything else. So the challenge was how do you formulate the quantum laws of physics to allow, to take into account the possibility of time travel, is that possible? And uh, I and a few other people came to the conclusion it is possible. That, uh, and I love that and, paper, by the way. And so <laughs> I should it, frame that one too. It is, <laughs> it is possible to, to formulate the laws of physics to allow for time travel, uh, uh, but uh, if, uh, time travel is possible, 
you have to take a particular approach to quantum physics, an approach due to Richard Feynman, the so-called path integral or somewhere history's approach, but the more conventional approach, which is called the Heisenberg approach, uh, uh, it can probably, it would appear, cannot accommodate time travel, whereas Feynman's approach can. And so that, for me, was a real eye-opener, uh, that, uh, that if you have a possibility of backward time travel, it tells you something deep that we haven't known before about the laws of quantum physics. So what would be, like, one thing we can discover, say, tomorrow, that would really make time travel seem that much more possible? Uh, that uh, you go backward in time and meet yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about a little bit about how hard this problem is to, to answer. Um, I thought about it, I realized like if you're from, if so, let's say you go back in time from the future to go meet someone, if you try and convince them you're from the future, it's actually really hard. Terminator. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, there's no real physical evidence that they're from the future. That's very hard for a person who's not that person who went into the The person in the future could know. Well, Super Bowl morning, you say exact point. That just means you're good at predicting stuff. No, exact so points. That's, that's I the, mean, odds are so exact points. Well, that's why he said chaos makes it uh, so that we get around the, this problem. But physics is, is basically the study of trying to predict things. That's the main goal it does. So... Chaos just said, okay, there's occasions where it's hard to do, like with the weather, but it's the main thing we're all trying to figure out is how to predict the future. So if you get really, really good at it, you know, like minority report style, you actually have a, like a hard time convincing somebody you aren't just like a really, really, uh, you know, good at predicting the future. It doesn't necessarily mean there isn't there. one person at Caltech that could have predicted Trump's current vibe. <laughs> Not one person in this whole. I place. predicted it. I, yeah. 40%. Yeah. No I did. way. Yes, I did. Yeah. Did, okay, when he was on Celebrity Apprentice. And you went backward in time and told <laughs> yeah. yourself. I predict a lot of stuff. I don't know. I predicted the iPad and all that stuff. You, did, you predicted yeah. the iPad? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a hobbyist futurist, so I usually get those things. Are you right. really good at the stock market? No, because <laughs> unfortunately everyone who's good it's at predicting fixed. the future. No, no, no. It's worse than fixed. Everyone who's good at it is doing it. And mm. then they make it that much harder for everybody else. That's really It's almost like problem. observing something changes an outcome type thing. Yeah, exactly. It absolutely does. Very much. Yeah. yeah. That's exact that it has that feedback. If you buy a bunch of stock, there's all these other buyers that say they go, Why is that person buying all the stock? And then they buy it. It's a, it has this that's where we get all these huge swings up and down. That's why you gotta buy it like right before like you gotta time it just so no one I else knows. No, it's like yeah. it's like traffic. Yeah. It's like you only get in the lane. But do it and don't let anyone else see you. You got to know it. something that somebody else don't know somehow. Yeah. One way or another. I'm looking at you, Jimmy. What do you know? I don't know. I bought you... some Netflix a while back. I think I'm doing okay. Nice. <laughs> I, this is a bit of a technical problem, but um, as you know, uh, the quantum information paradox is still like in the news day after day. Um, uh, Stephen Hawking just re-updated his previous uh, thing, his previous opinion. Um to say, I guess, that maybe gravity waves are to blame or something like that. Do you have a... I don't hear you talk about it that much. Do you well, think I it's a problem? I have a bet on this. John Preskill, Stephen Hawking, and I had a bet uh, as to whether... Maybe I should back back up and just say what the, the paradox is quickly. That's a pretty good yeah. idea. So <laughs> I just didn't want to sound like an idiot and ask. <laughs> yeah, I was letting you guys have a moment. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what is this paradox? <laughs> So this ties into what I was saying about uh, uh, about uh, going backward in time. There are two approaches uh, to uh, quantum physics. Uh, there is the Feynman approach, which is much more flexible can, and can accommodate things that are unusual more easily than the standard approach. Uh, I've always been, and always, since since I learned about it, I've been enamored of the Feynman approach, and, and it basically says that the future, uh, that that if I want to talk about what happens to me tomorrow, uh, it's actually controlled in some deep sense by uh, me really doing all possible things between now and tomorrow, and the thing that happens is uh, the one where. Uh, there are the most things that are like that all along the path, mm -hmm. and and uh, so uh, th everything, all possible histories are explored in some deep sense. Uh, but uh, uh, you wind up with basically one history for for a big classical uh, beast like me. 
I love that explanation and, too. He did. Uh, we talked about that with Pulitzer. Yeah. Uh, Feynman explains that in his yeah. book QED, which that's where where he gets it. You could he explains it without math or anything. So I I love this this approach and uh, this approach can accommodate the information loss. And so now let me but the standard quantum mechanics cannot. And so what is information loss? Well, let's say uh, issue that uh, that Stephen Hawking discovered while he was at Caltech in my research group in the mid-70s. He came awesome. out and spent a year here as a Sherman Fairchild scholar. And, uh, and we're here in the we're, Sherman Fairchild Library. Yeah, that's right. That's where <laughs> and, we are. Uh, so uh, Stephen uh, realized that if you have uh, something that implodes to form a black hole, say just a massive star, uh, and then the black hole evaporates by what's called Hawking radiation. Uh, that uh, the products of the evaporation in the end uh, would appear do not contain information about the details of the stuff that imploded. But the standard approach to quantum mechanics says that information has to be there. It may be uh, hidden, it may be very hard to find, but in principle that information is there whereas Stephen gave a rather compelling argument that it's not even there in principle. And if that were the case, then the standard approach to the laws of quantum physics would be wrong, but Feynman's approach can readily accommodate it. And so this How is does Feynman accommodate it? Well, it's be that uh, when you do the sum over histories, right. uh, you can have histories uh, that basically involve losing the information, uh, and it just doesn't come back out. It's, it's a very technical thing. Uh, maybe maybe I should back up and say, for those who have some uh, relevant background in physics, what we're really talking about is whether or not the evolution from now to the future after the black hole has evaporated is unitary. And this is a technical phrase that uh, uh, that is uh, really what we mean by information is not lost, that this evolution mm. is unitary mathematically. And so it's a, a mathematical description of how you go from the initial conditions to the final conditions. And Feynman's approach perfectly well can allow for non-unitary evolutions. Uh, it doesn't have to, uh, but uh, if you have closed time-like curves, if you have backward time travel, then you will have a non-unitary evolution, for example. And, and my So those two are equivalent, basically? Uh, no, or? but they're, they're related. Okay, so if, uh, if someone comes to Stephen Hawking's future party, he, will he concede the bet? Uh, <laughs> is that sufficient? <laughs> I've got to think about that. All right. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to, 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 to answer that off the top of my head. And anyway. Yeah, but you could just email him and ask. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, so, so I uh, have long, since this problem was raised, I have been of the opinion that I find it a plausible and attractive idea that, uh, in fact, when you sum over all these possible histories, some of them have backward time travel in them. As a result, you lose this unitary evolution. You lose information. And so there's no problem uh, with losing information down a black hole. So that's and and, oh. and so, so Hawking and I and John Preskill made a bet on whether or not information is lost down a black hole. Uh, Hawking and I on one side that it's lost and Preskill on the other that it's not. This was back around late 1990s. Uh, Stephen uh, Hawking conceded. I've not conceded yet. But he It's a famous bet. So. Everybody knows that Stephen <laughs> conceded to John Preston. Nobody knows that I haven't conceded yet. <laughs> I like that. So I'm, I'm revealing it to, to the whole world on your podcast. That's awesome. But I've not yet conceded. <laughs> what is I, information exactly? Like when you say information? So that information that's where it gets matter? tricky. Yeah, yeah. So in this sense, it means that there's unitary evolution that means that uh, that if you begin with in what is called a quantum mechanical pure state you wind up in a pure state it uh, uh, so it it means that uh, that probabilities are fully predictable in some sense uh, here's a problem i have not, with it not that what happens is fully predictable but probabilities are fully predictable in some yeah. sense here's where i have a problem with that exact question is that um one of the things that comes up when you talk about this is the difference between quantum information versus classical information. And as an experimentalist, I know that 
at the end of the day, all we ever measure is classical information. So I've always been like a little uncomfortable with worrying about whether it's lost or not, because it's not a thing I ever feel like I have in the first place. And it, to me, it, it ends up feeling a lot like free will. You know, it's like, well, it's fun to talk about, but it's not a thing I can actually measure on a, a you know, I can't well, count uh, bits but, of uh, quantum information the, the thing, same way. These things may be slippery, but they have very powerful technological consequences, as, as you know, that... Uh, if uh, if there uh, that quantum information underlies quantum cryptography, which is the ultimate way to keep your secrets safe from the government, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, quantum information underlies quantum computing, which is the ultimate way to uh, do certain kinds of computations hugely faster than anybody ever thought was possible. So, so as slippery as quantum information is. It's tremendously important for 21st century technology. Well, but it's, it's, I feel like there it's the same with like a circle, you know, like, okay, so we have this idea of a circle, you know, we've had it since Plato. It's a great idea. And you can say you can make all these predictions with circles, like planets move in circles and, you know, that's a bubble forms a sphere and stuff. But I feel like it, there's a real similarity there where it just, a circle is an idea that the laws approximate. And when we actually go to measure, we measure. We don't measure a circle. We measure a bunch of little. We count things that lie roughly on a circle. Are, are you sure it's? Is there a possibility that it, the quantum information is like that? That it, it's a very good mathematical tool to to track the flow of classical information. We don't have exact track of, but that it might just be like that. It might be a platonic view of of you know something that's. Well, it doesn't look like that so far. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and and there are. You know, these, there are these deep experiments to uh, search for any evidence that there is a classical world underlying the quantum uh, laws, and uh, these experiments come out the way the quantum physics says they should, uh, and in a way that at least rules out uh, people's proposals for how this classical world would underlie the quantum laws. And so, um, there's a lot, a huge amount of evidence that uh, that. Uh, it's not like that. So. so like the quantum, that's basically like that there's a probability that a particle is someplace versus knowing where it's going to be? Is that is that, that whole concept? Yeah, and, and, that's the, and that uh, everything in this world is a, a little bit fuzzy. Right. Uh, that uh, you can never know uh, with complete precision uh, anything. Basically. I agree with that. Well, have, <laughs> you, have you seen a new Samsung 4K TV, though? No. What's that? It's not fuzzy anymore. That was just a horrible <laughs> joke that did not land, and now I sound like an idiot. So. You know, you take chances in wow. life as a comedian. Jimmy. So. Wow. It's, it's good. It's all right. It's, it's all funny. Right. Joke we were very quantum. No. It was in the realm of funny, but, <laughs> you know, God apparently does roll dice. No free will. Is that, what was I that quote by Einstein? Yeah, that's it. God does not roll, roll dice. dice. Yeah. And Stephen Hawking said uh, he not only rolls dice, he uh, sometimes throws them where you can't find them. Uh, <laughs> Is that is that kind of like a, a trend in physics though? Like with you have Newton and then yeah, like it's almost like people seem to prove something and then get mad later in their career when something else comes up. Because <laughs> I mean, you had the ether and then you had you know it seems like this cycle where everyone you know Einstein does this brilliant thing and then by the end of his career he's like really pissed about the new thing. <laughs> I know that comes from such a layman way to say it, but like yeah, so so let's let's talk about Einstein in that respect. Sure. So, so Einstein. Uh, formulated uh, special relativity, general relativity, the, the laws of warped space and time, understanding how weird uh, time and space can behave. Yeah. He also uh, pioneered a lot of quantum physics, these that uh, things can't be measured with complete precision, everything's a little bit fuzzy, and how do you deal with this? Um, but he was never comfortable uh, with how you interpret the uh, behavior of quantum physics. Uh, that uh, there's... It just felt weird to him. Now, Richard Feynman, who was a close friend of mine, uh, we had this conversation a number of times, and he was also never comfortable, uh, although he was one of the great quantum physicists of the uh, 20th century. He was also never comfortable with uh, how do you understand quantum physics in a fundamental sort of way? How do you really, uh, what's really going on? Uh, this is uh, quite common. Physicists just don't feel comfortable with it. They know how it works, but it just doesn't feel right. Do you think well, that's how I feel about it? But, but let, but let <laughs> me totally go on. So, so, fine, so, so uh, Einstein, in his effort 
to come to grips with this. He uh, proposed something that just uh, called the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox, which I won't go into the details. But it, and this is the mid 1930s. This is when people look back and they say of him, he just didn't understand quantum mechanics. He he was confused. He was denying uh, modern physics, and that's what's often said of him. But in fact, that paradox is one of the most fundamental things that underlies modern quantum information theory. It's it's the foundation for quantum cryptography. Wow. So he, he, in his efforts to understand something he was uncomfortable with, he made an enormous breakthrough that was only recognized as a breakthrough in this much more recent era <laughs> as uh, people are trying to uh, deal with quantum information. So even in one of his perceived failures, was that actually like a crushing kick-ass? It was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and it happened a couple that. of times, too, yeah. with, the, with the Big Bang Theory and everything. Do you think that happens uh, because physics almost appeals to a group of people that love, uh, you know, F equals MA, like concrete things, and then once this fuzzy stuff is introduced, people start feeling uncomfortable? No, I think it's that... Uh, it appeals to people who really want to understand. And once the fuzzy stuff is introduced, it becomes a fascinating challenge yeah. to try to understand. And, and, and I think another aspect of it is that physicists get their, rub, get, uh, their mistakes rubbed in their noses every day. So we become, in some sense, <laughs> we get booze. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're just like comedians. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but you're booing yourself because usually your mistakes are known only to you. But uh, you see it happen so often that do you know what, it's, what it is to be proved wrong? You know what it is to be booed? And, yeah. uh, and uh, the challenge uh, of trying to make sense out of the world when you're continually making mistakes is, well, it's a fun challenge in some sense, but it's also a humbling challenge. You're going to need to go soon. So I want to talk about The Martian a little bit since I... I promised Andy we would. Um, have you read the book? No, yet? I haven't no? yet. No. Are you just going to wait to be surprised by the... I'm, uh, this is great that both of you didn't read each other's books. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait until I have a little bit of relaxing time. Okay. And uh, So that could be at my home in Oregon when I'm uh, oh, being quiet or my uh, brother's little inn in Chicala, Mexico near Puerto Vallarta, which is a very peaceful little fishing village. Uh, but I, ha I have to be in a quiet frame of mind where I can just sit down and relax and enjoy. And and I'm not feeling pushed by all this the shit that's coming at me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually listened to your am, book. Am I allowed to say shit in Absolutely. the podcast? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your book's awesome. I audible it. I like listening. I feel weird saying red when it's listened. Usually you're, you're, you're so busy talking about what we're going to be doing, you know, a millennia from now, and we're sufficiently advanced. You're not as likely to be talking about our very short-term plans. And The Martian is really like, what can we do if we started working on it tomorrow? That's one of the great things I like about it. So I, do you have opinions, strong opinions, about whether we should go to Mars now or later? Well, I have strong opinions that we should go. Uh, I don't think it makes a big difference whether we go this year or, or next year. <laughs> okay, but what about but, this but, year versus 300 years from now? No, it, we should be doing this in the, the next uh, decade or two. Um, this is the time. Uh, we have the technology. Uh, we have uh, the resources. Uh, the amount of resources required is small uh, compared to the resources that we as a, a human society have. So uh, there's no question we should be doing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're doing it for cultural reasons, for reasons of the future of the human race. We're not doing it for scientific reasons. If all you want to do is learn about Mars, uh, you send robotic missions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's, a, uh, it's simply not right to claim that uh, humans being there is the key to doing science. But uh, humans being, being there is the key to the psyche of the human race. It's the key to us, us, us as, uh, uh, and our future as a human race. Well, someone pointed out to me, though, when they were talking about manned space missions, somebody said there is a really important scientific question that you answer when you send someone to Mars, mm -hmm. and that's, are we able to send a person to Mars? Yeah. And that itself has a really, you know, that's a, that's a really important question. Yeah. Right? I think that question you can, uh, we probably have enough information to answer it with very high confidence now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can analyze all the issues. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, we know that one of the very biggest issues is cosmic rays from the sun. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it at a solar minimum. Uh, you've got to get them there fast, uh, uh, or uh, they'll get killed mm-hmm. along the way. And that's a big issue that I think, uh, it's my impression, has not been faced up to adequately. But these things have have answers. We can analyze, and uh, we probably didn't have enough answers to know how humans how the human body would adapt to uh, being in space and free fall for long periods of time. We now do have that. Mm-hmm. That was some, a piece of important science that required a human in space. I'm not convinced you need uh, a human in space for other scientific reasons. Okay. What are you most uh, excited about for the future, the immediate future of science? Like what's coming up that you think is really cool? Well, I think uh, for me personally, yeah. I, I, the LIGO gravitational wave uh, detection system, the advanced LIGO system. We begin our first uh, gravitational wave search with these advanced detectors in about a week. That's really awesome. And it's really an exciting time. We've been building toward this for decades. We now have detectors that are operating at a sensitivity where we have a really good shot of seeing something, uh, where I have rather high confidence that we will see something somewhere between this year and 2019. So, so you got to say is one of the things we were talking about futurists. Um, Kip really taught me to have faith in, enough faith in science that you can do something like that. Because I remember you saying, you know, here's the pl- the plan to detecting gravitational waves. These are things that are insanely small uh, 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 fractions of the diameter of a nucleus. Really hard problems. I remember when you, you were talking about it, I was so skeptical that that was possible, but you just were very confident and you said, you know, then we'll be able to do this in the 10 years. And you, you did kind of like a, um, uh, like a Moore's Law thing, but with something even more remarkable. And it's so exciting to, that you, you're here to see that that's actually happening. Well, it's now. remarkable that the National Science Foundation has put the resources in to uh, pull it off financial resources, and uh, it has involved some of the uh, world's most brilliant and and skilled experimental physicists to pull it off, and we're there. Uh, But it's been a long haul, uh, a very long haul, but we are there, and these next several years are going to be tremendously exciting. So there you go. He predicted something like well over 30 years ago, and it came true. Well, it came true. So <laughs> it came true. We have instruments at this sensitivity so, now. Right. We still have yet to see the waves. But, but I'm just saying, you're, to you're either really off an atom. Is that is no, that no, no? Uh, to detect. Well, I'll let so, him so, so, let, so the issue is that uh, associated with electricity and magnetism, there is a wave, and we call it light. And it carries information, and it travels across the vast reaches of the universe from star, distant stars. Similarly, associated with gravity, there is a wave, and it's uh, called a gravitational wave. And it, is, it can travel across vast reaches of the universe, bringing us pictures of uh, what's going on in the universe. Now, the key thing about these gravitational waves is that they are produced not by atoms and molecules, but by anything that has a huge amount of energy, mm-hmm. including, say, black holes that don't have any matter associated with them at all. So I've long believed the first, that it's likely the first thing we will see is these ripples of waves from black holes that collide. Each black hole has a vortex of twisting space sticking out of its north pole and a vortex of twisting space sticking out of the south pole, clockwise twist at the north pole, counterclockwise twist at the south pole. These black holes collide. Uh, the uh, create a new black hole has four vortexes of twisting space. Those vortexes don't like each other. Those vortices don't like each other. They fight with each other. They throw each other off the black holes, then embrace and form a torus of expanding uh, twisting space that becomes this gravitational wave that we see uh, wow. if you have a head-on collision. The, I mean, uh, so so we are going to see things that are so wildly different than anything we've ever seen before with these gravitational waves, bringing us images of things that cannot be seen with light, can't be seen with radio waves, x-rays. and So that's why I uh, have been pushing this, uh, I and colleagues, since the 1970s. 
And or you're here. from the future and you already knew it was going to work. Yeah, I think you're a time traveler. <laughs> <laughs> That's you're why like, it hasn't conceived. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a movie deal. I'm it's going to be amazing. See, I thought I had the world fooled. So black holes don't have mass? I thought it was like the, all No, they do have ton, mass. Like they, crazy They mass. have crazy mass, but it's not made from matter. It's made from warped space and time. Mm -hmm. Remember, they're the same thing. So what um <laughs> the equals MC squared. So yeah, what this uh, new, yeah, like new, new, on the new trampoline um, like the like so so if well, if you if you take a trampoline and uh, you sit on it yeah and you're a very heavy guy yeah you bend the rubber down you've done a lot of work to bend that rubber and the work the energy is stored in the bending rubber interesting uh well similarly the energy of a black hole an energy and mass are equivalent is stored in the warping of space and time. It's like elastic, and the, is that the supernova then? Well, so, so no, the, superno the supernova itself is, uh, involves matter. That one's and, down more at my territory. And, and so it's a nuclear and, thing, so it's so, stuff I So study. this is right. some, something much wilder than, than Yeah, black supernova. holes are, uh, that's a I mean, This is way higher energy than I'm I guess. Into it. <laughs> it, these are rich, uh, wildly rich and interesting beasts when, when they collide with... So it's like uh, up until now we had only seen the ocean in a, on a calm day. We'd never seen it in a storm. We'd never seen crashing waves. We'd never seen water spouts. Uh, and uh, what we will see with colliding black holes by means of gravitational waves is how warped space and warped time behave in a storm. Uh, in a situation where the rate of flow of time isn't just slower here by a large amount, it's oscillating wildly. Wow. It's faster and then slower, faster and then slower, and space is whirling around in this t these twisting forms that are fighting with each other. I mean, it's a, 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 a wilder form of storm than you've ever seen on an ocean, but it's all happening in warped, empty space and sending out these waves that are carrying the details with them that we will, I am quite confident, be detecting within these next several years, maybe even this year. Uh, and for the first time, see see this happening. Are you annoyed that uh, Nolan didn't put it in the uh, movie, the gravitational <laughs> wave detector? <laughs> I, I was quite disappointed. Uh, as I say in my book, it was in there originally as a prologue. I was disappointed, but I understood very well. There is already so much science in that movie. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. yeah. that, uh, and we just we took 20 minutes first to talk about it just right. now. So. And it, so you've got a movie that, that has sold roughly 100 million tickets around the world. $700 million of ticket sales. That's amazing. Uh, and that doesn't count the Blu-rays and the DVDs, which you're going to double that. Uh, and uh, and it, when you look at how much science is in there, uh, and a lot of it that Chris himself added, in, in many cases with help from me, uh, so there was something had to go. Mm -hmm. And gravitational waves were not central to the movie originally. Mm -hmm. They... Uh, were central to a prologue, but the prologue could be jettisoned uh, without losing anything, and so he jettisoned it, and I didn't complain, even though it was I was deeply disappointed. Is it common for black holes to collide? Uh, so uh, let's... There is a black hole collision somewhere in the universe probably every few minutes. Whoa. But, in, <laughs> but they're far uh, away. But in, but in our galaxy, uh, there's one about every uh, million years. Wow. Yeah. So that sort of sets the stage. So there's probably a monster one in the center of the galaxy, but is there more just like hanging? There, yeah, there are uh, roughly 100 million black holes in our galaxy, 10 million, 100 million, mm -hmm. small black holes. But they're so far apart apart that they don't collide very often. Right, it's like comedians. All right, yeah. so I know you have to go, so I just want to ask one last question, and then... Uh, <laughs> Do you uh, are you working on a new movie? I think right, or you're, yeah. you're toying with that. Uh, can you tell us anything about it? Well, or is it I, just I, uh, I, is that for future? I can, I'll tell you everything I can tell you. Okay, and, and I'm highly constrained, but by agreement with my partner. So okay. who are the so, so inter, to set the stage? Interstellar was started by Linda Opst and me. Mm -hmm. Linda Opst is a remarkable producer in Hollywood. Uh, she uh, did uh, it was Carl Sagan's partner on Contact. Uh, for example, and she was my partner in starting uh, Interstellar, and uh, she nursed it along and through all the vagaries of Hollywood until she got Christopher Nolan on board to just grabbed it and took off. Uh, so she 
and I and Stephen Hawking are the three partners on this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you need, do you need help? Uh, do you need, <laughs> do you need an Asian started. actor in this movie? Does it involve an Asian scientist? Do you need anyone over 6'5"? <laughs> There's not a lot of us. <laughs> we uh, have gone through nine drafts of a treatment. A treatment is a description of the story, the, in, in, in our case, the story of the science, the underlying science, and characters. Um, Can you drop like one hint? Is it time travel? Is it anything? And it is science fiction. (laughs) Groundhog's Day 2. And and it is not in any sense whatsoever a sequel to Interstellar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. That's information right there. So that's all I can tell you. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. This was amazing. This was great. This was Surely You're Joking. Uh, Thanks for coming, everybody. Jimmy, do you, uh, you, how do people find you? Yeah, just uh, you can always find me at jimmycomedy.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FunnyAsianDude. And, of course, check out Silicon Valley. It's a great show. How about you, Owen? I am at Owen Benjamin on Twitter, Owen Benjamin Comedy on Facebook, OwenBenjamin.com slash tour. Uh, my live dates, come see me. I'm super funny, and I have gravitational waves uh, coming off my body. Because <laughs> I have black holes colliding all the time in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> all right, yeah, that's a great tour. You should check it out. Uh, I got, was lucky enough to be part of it. Yeah, Kevin, will, awesome. Kevin will be at some of the dates. Yep, that's right. Uh, I'm Kevin Hickerson. You can find me on Twitter, KP Hickerson, on YouTube, on Facebook, Kevin.Hickerson. Uh, All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye, Kip. Later.